So, so what's in a name? If you grow up with a name uh, that you can't spell for many years of your early life, uh, quite a lot. See, the name Brett Jones seems uh, rather plain, rather uneventful. But Brett Llewellyn Jones, now that's a name. That's a name of, of epic proportions. That's a name that, that carries weight, carries origins, carries whakapapa. There's been, a, there's been a Llewellyn in every generation uh, uh, in my family for many generations. My, my grandfather's name was Llewellyn Jones. His grandfather was Myrick Llewellyn. My dad was Glenn Llewellyn. Rory is Rory Martin Llewellyn. Or as he called himself for a long time, courtesy of Riley, Rory Watermelon Jones. <laughs> I relate. Because it's a hard name. What kind of parent would give it to you? Four L's, a W, and a Y. Llewellyn. More glottal stops and throat clearing than you can shake a stick at. Because we're Welsh oil. That's where we came from. Coiti in South Wales, just between Swansea and Cardiff. Uh, Welsh from my head. To my toes. Except it turns out that I'm not. <laughs> What's in a name? Not much if the DNA doesn't live up to the name. See, I did a DNA test to prove my Welshness. It yielded a few surprises. This is, this is, I don't know if I've ever admitted anything so shameful as this. Uh, <laughs> I'm 55% English. Now that wasn't actually much of a surprise because I've been doing my family tree and, uh, and so I knew how, how English I actually was, especially on, uh, on my mum's uh, side. Uh, but what was a surprise is that genetically I'm 26% Irish. And you know, I, I mean, I don't know where... I tested, I actually checked the result three times to be sure, to be sure, to be sure. <laughs> Some of you are doing the maths and working out that doesn't leave that much room uh, for Welsh. Turns out I am 6% Welsh, so maybe sort of like this bit is Welsh. I'm also a Viking, alright, apparently. And a few other little things uh, here and there. But the name and the DNA just didn't match the way that I thought they would. Didn't match how I've kind of lived my life and the identity that has shaped me. What's in a name? What's in a name? Well, well names, they carry weight. They carry origins. They they, they carry whakapapa, and in some cases, they reflect DNA. The, the building blocks. And in this series, we're going on something of a, 
of a journey to reconnect uh, with our DNA, with our Papa. And, and much of that is found in our, our stories of origin. Uh, and much of our Papa is actually contained in the scriptures uh, that form a part of uh, who we are and where we come from. And tonight, as we begin this series session, a community of surrender, uh, we're asking, what's in a name? Will you pray with me? Father God, we have a sense um, that identity has never been more important uh, in this season than it has been. We have a sense that knowing who we are and why we are is, is really significant for us as people, for us as followers of yours and, and, and as the church together. So we pray that you would, you would continue to shape who we are, uh, our identity in you, our identity as people are connected uh, to each other, as people who are called um, to a time and a place and a community of people to, to be a part of a broader uh, community. And would you continue to just shape who we are, who you say we are, and who you say we are. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, one of the most compelling uh, images of the church and the scriptures is the idea as the church, of the church as the bride uh, of Christ. We find, we find this description actually in a number of different places, but uh, you particularly find it in Revelation, uh, mentioned three or four times uh, in Revelation. Uh, for example, in, in chapter 19, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen element is the righteous deeds of the saints, the church. And, and in some ways, the image has a, has a cultural weight and intent that I guess is not uh, fully reflected in some of the wider kind of social attitudes uh, to marriage. But I think there's enough still within our, in our context to, to get it. It's an image of uh, intimacy. The way it's expressed here, it's an image of joy. Uh, and it's an image of surrender. And this particularly comes through in today's reading from Ephesians 5. Uh, some of you might have been wondering, gosh, is he reading the right passage? It seems like this might be a different, a different week. Uh, yeah, he was. He, he, did, he did well. Now, and Ephesians 5, because Ephesians 5 is one of those passages that has consumed a, a ton of ink for what it says about the marriage relationship and particularly the relationship between men and women, uh, than what it says about the church. But uh, for today, I, like Paul, in verse 32, will simply say, but I am talking about Christ and the church. <laughs> and, and this particular uh, passage uh, is part of a, of, a, of a much larger section, which begins at the beginning of the chapter. Now, Ephesians 5, 1-2 really gives us the flavor of the whole passage. Here's what it says. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, there are, um, there are people in my family who are obsessed with uh, locating family resemblances between generations. Uh, 
Recently, when uh, Merrick Garland became the Attorney General of the US, one of my family, uh, let's call her Mary Ann. Mary Ann noticed just how how uh, how much just how how much he looked like the New Zealand Garlands. Um, there must be a connection, she thought. That the like the likeness is just so strong. Surprisingly, it turns out that there is no connection between the Garlands originally from Quat, Garlands from Quat in Shropshire, uh, and the, and a family of uh, Lithuanian Jews who changed their name when they immigrated to the USA. But the resemblance is uncanny. And Ephesians 5 is all about family resemblance. Children who follow the example of a parent. Dearly loved children, the passage said, who are following God's example. Actually, the wording carries this idea of imitation. Like a child imitates a parent. And this, this, the use of this word imitation, it's the, it's the only place that Paul uses it. Uh, he uses all kinds of other words to talk about how we might look like Jesus, but this, this idea of imitation is, is unique here to Ephesians. And who should we imitate? What, what should we imitate? What, what family resemblance should we look for? That we would walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And so it's an image here of, of love and surrender that is flavoring the whole of chapter 5. So when we get down to verse 25, Paul is using the image of marriage really quite counterculturally for his time to, to describe the relationship between Christ and the church as a, as a relation of mutual surrender where the husband lives sacrificially for his wife as Christ does for the church and the wife lives sacrificially for her husband as the church does for Christ. This idea of love and, and surrender, of giving ourselves up to God, lies at the heart of the, this metaphor, this image of the church's identity as the bride of Christ. But it turns out it's not just Llewellyn that's hard to spell. Some people actually name their churches in such ambiguous ways that they're always having to spell it. And give explanations for where the name came from, what it means. You've heard some of the story, some of it was even true, uh, from Greg and Jacob. And truthfully, Spelunk would, given us, would have given us no less trouble than spelling session with a C constantly. <laughs> Valentine's Law Dictionary defines session as, as surrender, a giving up, a, a relinquishment of jurisdiction, a transfer of ownership. And often in contrast with, with annexation, where property is, is forcibly seized, session is seen as voluntary. And sometimes treaties are actually signed, particularly between countries, 
that are wanting to transfer uh, land, and that property is ceded. C-E-D-E-D. -E -E is ceded from one to another using a treaty of session. A church which has as its name, uh, at its heart, a name which speaks to surrender. And that is a name that carries weight. That is a name that, that carries whakapapa. And this surrender we are named for carries labels. I want to talk about three different layers. The first layer is a, is a surrender to God. We are surrendering, giving up, transferring ownership of our lives to God. And verses 25 and 27 actually capture this movement. Husbands, love your wife. Wife, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It is Christ who was surrendered, gave himself up for the church so that we might surrender to God. And, and this is how Ephesians um, describes what that surrender looks like. It's holy. It's set apart. It's clean. It's not dirty. It's washed. It's radiant. Without stain or, or wrinkle. Blameless. This is this is who we are. Not just as session with the small C, but the church with the big C. We are part of this surrender to God, this session to God. And this is precisely where we finished up last week in our Lost series uh, in, in chapter 9 of Luke. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So we want it to be a community where, where people could be encouraged to surrender to God from whatever background they might have come from, from whatever prior knowledge of God or not that they might have had. And so a couple of our core values really helped us capture this idea. Here's a couple of them. You'll be seeing some of these through the series. Here's the first one. Passionate connection. We thirst for passionate connection with God, individually and as a community of worship, worshippers. And we strive to draw others into that connection. Passionate connection, one of our core values. Another one that I think really speaks into this, uh, it's the idea of holistic expression. We believe that learning to follow Jesus Christ is a whole-of-life activity. Not just what you do on a Sunday, but a whole-of-life activity that expresses itself in a lifestyle of worship. And we acknowledge that the choice to follow Jesus is often a process of progressive surrender and that this dynamic of progressive surrender typifies our ongoing following of Him. Passionate connection. Surrender. 
This is who we are called to be. It's what we are named to be. It is in our, it's in our DNA. It's in our origin stories. It's part of our whakapapa. The second layer of our surrender is surrender to one another. Verse 28 of Ephesians 5, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does for the church, for we are members uh, of his body. See, there's a powerful idea in Scripture uh, that the church is a radical community that is radically committed to one another, surrendered to one another. We, we are part of feeding and caring for one another. And Paul just diverts just for a moment here, uh, or at least he mixes, mixes his metaphors a little bit, just for a moment from, from the bridal image to, to the familiar body image. This idea uh, of radical surrender in community it's captured often by this, this, this idea of the body. Uh, and we actually looked at some scriptures uh, last year um, as we, uh, that, that used this image, as we, as we dealt with some of the really tough issues that were circulating in the community and were overflowing into the church. Um, and one of the ones that we looked at um, in some depth was 1 Corinthians 12 from verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. This is what marks the church as a completely different uh, kind of group, a completely different kind of organisation, a completely different kind of, of community. And so we became... Session community, not session church. Although we don't mind the word. Uh, but in M. Scott Peck's words, we, we dreamed of a deeper community, a group of individuals who have learned how to communicate honestly with each other, whose relationships go deeper than the masks of composure, and who have developed some significant commitment to rejoice together, mourn together, and to delight in each other, make others' conditions our own. And so we enshrined it in a value, authentic community. Ooh, let's carry on. Uh, we choose to live life together in an authentic community that engages deeply, responds instinctively, and supports freely. We long to be a haven for lost souls where people of diverse backgrounds and experiences can relate with integrity, authenticity, uh, and compassion. And for us, this meant a desire to transcend what Peck calls pseudo-community, pseudo-community, and, and you, you, you've no doubt experienced it uh, in your families, in other organisations, even in the church at times. This is a stage where people pretend to have a balanced and open friendship with one another, uh, but cover up their differences by acting as, as if the differences do not exist. Um, and, and pretending that differences don't exist and, and pseudo-community can, can never really lead a group uh, particularly a church, to true community. But it's part of the process of deciding what you don't want, what you don't want to settle for uh, when you embark on a journey as a, as a church. And Peck talks through the different stages of community formation that can happen uh, 
that, that lead us out of pseudo-community uh, into chaos as those differences begin to get surfaced. And it, it can be quite a, an uncomfortable and, and conflict-driven uh, kind of phase, but it's, it's necessary. It seems like it's counterproductive, but it's also sometimes the first genuine step towards community building. And there's been some chaos in our midst in the last little while. And after chaos, Peck would say, comes emptiness. And at this stage, people, they really begin to empty themselves of really what our ego-based factors that, that ultimately are preventing you know, entry, engagement with a genuine community. And it's a, tough, it's a tough step as well, because it means we, we kind of die to ourselves. We, there's a death of a part of us, our ego, as we, as we try to reach for what true community is. And that's the goal that Pip would say, and it, it maps really well onto what we, the scriptures we see describing the church. That happens as people uh, are able to relate to each other in a deeper and more honest way. People are able to serve one another, honor one another, love one another, trust one another, uh, and do life together in a way that's deeply meaningful. I do sense that this season uh, we are in has revealed some of these some of these different stages of community. We've experienced chaos. We, we have experienced and are experiencing emptiness. I think many people have decided that what they've experienced as pseudo-community is not worth the effort. I think that's, that's a true thing. We continue to seek true community. Become the community of surrender that our name calls us to. Well, the final layer in our name, uh, in our surrender, is the idea of of surrender, not just to God, not just to each other, but to our neighbours, to those out, to those outside, you know, the identifiable family of session community. You see, if we are to walk in the way of love that Ephesians five one calls us to, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, then we will live that way for others, and as our as our community becomes a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God that seeks and, and searches for others, just like we saw in our last series. You know, our last series uh, was, was not accidental. It was no, no accident that, that we felt we needed to call each other back to this enlarged view uh, of the world. Really beyond the lockdown world of of business sleepwear and, and life ending at the front gate. It's time to embrace again our commitment to others that they might experience life with God and life in community. Now the oldest word for the church and it's actually a word that, that Paul uses uh, in this passage in Ephesians, when he's, which is translated as church, is the Greek word ekklesia, from which we get the, the term like ecclesiastical and you know words like that in that English. And in the first century, the word ekklesia was a was a, a, a Greek compound noun that was made by combining combining two words, one meaning out of and one meaning I call. So ekklesia were, in a very literal sense, uh, people called out of somewhere. And, and the word was actually was actually in use, you know, centuries before uh, it was ever used 
to describe the church. And it was sometimes, I used to refer to a, really a socio-political gathering of citizens, which seems topical given our local body elections, uh, who, were, who were called together to attend to the concerns of the city, like a, like a city council or a local board uh, would be. And if it was used that way in Acts 19, uh, when Paul came to Ephesus, came to Ephesus, which is where you know, Ephesians takes its name from. And he came there to teach people about Christ. And, and those that were, that were opposed to that activity uh, came to the, the uh, Ephesian amphitheater, uh, which is called in verse 32 and verse 40 of Acts 19, the Ecclesia. But it's not referencing the church. It's the town, the town clerk of Ephesus is attempting to calm the situation down and, and told this assembly of people that if they had any grievances, they should take these to the ecclesia, the assembly for decision. And why have I bothered to tell you all of that? Well, I really like the idea that this word, which has come to mean a, a gathering of Christians who are in some sense called out of the world, nevertheless retains a tie to the world which it serves. See, the Ecclesia is still a place, is still a gathering that meets to deal with the deepest concerns of the world. We captured some of that in a battle. Others focused. We believe that one of the greatest challenges of the human condition is to get past a focus on ourselves. So we're learning to put others first in the way we use our time, financial resources, or material and material possessions. The ecclesia, the assembly that is vitally concerned with its neighbours, not just concerned with those who are part of the family, who are recognisable as part of the family, but who cross over, uh, out the front yard, across the back fence, people who have connections into the community, the kind of people that I know that many of you have, have named and put on the prayer tree. And so our final layer is not just that we would be surrendered to God and surrendered to each other, but that we would be surrendered to our community. And, and that's not just a state of mind. That's about how priorities are assessed, how resources are used, how time is focused. And it's what sets a church apart. It's a critical part of DNA that will govern whether a church is more focused on what's happening inside than it is on what's happening outside. The church that's described here in Ephesians 5 is a church that has its attention on God and has its attention on each other and has its attention on its neighbourhood. So what's in a name? Well, I dare to say quite a lot. I dare to say our name really does carry a lot of weight. Session community. A community of surrender to God and to others and to our neighbours. I think it carries a ton of weight. And the DNA that, that has been a part of our journey together for so long is, is there to be tested. Is there to be tested. You know, I 
I don't know why I tried to prove I was Welsh. I guess it meant a lot to work out whether I was who I said I was. And I feel that way about our church as well. You pray with me. Father God, we are so grateful that you have called each one of us by name. That we are your children. You've called us into relationship with one another. That we might together be the church. In all our in all our messiness and incompleteness, that you might call us uh, to love, to be unlovable. And that, God, you have shaped the church to be something that is radiant, blameless, without wrinkle or stain, something that is attractive, that has something, has a sense of. Uh, of desire about it, that we, we want people to see uh, what we see. So God, would you continue to shape uh, this church family, this, um, this ecclesia, this community? Would you continue to shape us that we might more and more and more live a life of love as Christ who laid down his life for us more? We have a sense, God, that maybe this, this is a process that um, will never be finished. But we ask that you would give us a love for the church, the same love for the church that you have for her. That you would remind us that we, together, are your bride. That you long for intimacy and joy and surrender. Tonight we, we offer ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus.